DealQuest listeners and viewers, I was so excited to have Barry Seidel on an upcoming episode of DealQuest. Barry's a lawyer I've known for decades, and he's not a deal lawyer, but he still does deals. Barry, what are we going to hear about on your episode of DealQuest? Uh, Corey, uh, we're going to talk about the, the deal-making aspect of the entrepreneurial part of law practice. So uh, I'll be talking about how I uh, started a practice right out of school and the deals that I had to make to uh, to get the practice started and to, with my uh, my initial uh, uh, office that I had where I had to make a deal for time for space. And over time, as I, as I evolved in and out of different areas of practice, uh, lots of different deals were needed to either make adjustments or to start a new area or to do what needed to be done to move forward or to make changes. Uh, and so um, there's a deal-making aspect all throughout, and I'm looking forward to talking about all those things. Uh, it's going to be great, folks. And you know, listen, you're going to hear some really good stuff that you can apply to your business, it, you know, even if you have a business totally different than law. And one of the other things I know, because I know Barry's story, that he's going to talk about, which I preach all the time, is that, you know what, sometimes it makes sense to do deals with your competitors, uh, right? Yes, and <laughs> I know what you're referring to, and I'm looking forward to talking about that. That is uh, something that has served me well over the years. Perfect. So watch out for that. You're going to get a lot of great lessons. Barry Seidel on an upcoming episode of DealQuest. Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions, smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the DealQuest podcast. Let's get started. DealQuest listeners and viewers, I'm very excited to have Barry Seidel as my guest this week on the DealQuest podcast. Barry opened his own law practice right out of school in 1982. Um, he wrote a book on his experiences about that, Evolutions of a Law Practice, How I Opened My Law Practice Right Out of Law School. And if anybody doesn't know, that's a rare path uh, and not easy to do. And he lived to tell about it. Uh, I write, uh, or he, he writes and speak, speaks and teaches and consults about law practice with the goal of helping other lawyers and entrepreneurs improve their practices and their lives. He's a native of Queens, New York, where he still lives and practices. And I've known Barry for, let's say, some number of decades. <laughs> Barry, I would say that's correct. Let's leave, let's leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> welcome, welcome. Great to have you. Um, nice to be here, Clark. So, folks, we're gonna I'm gonna jump in with you know my um, starting questions for Barry, but I will tell you, you know, it's interesting when you hear lawyer, um, you might assume I'm having him on because he's a deal lawyer of some sort, which is similar to what I do, but it's actually not the case. So, you know, might be wondering why uh, you know a lawyer who has mainly been uh, you know handling litigation and other stuff is on the show, but wait and you'll find out because this shows you that there are deals to be done for any person of any background. And Barry has some, some great ones to talk about. So Barry, before we get there though, I wanna take you back to when you were a little kid growing up, maybe 10, 12 years old. What did you wanna be? Because for a lot of folks, it has nothing to do with what they're doing now, but who knows, you tell me. 
I mean, the law, being a lawyer was always in play for me, although uh, when I think about that now, what I really wanted to do back then was to be a radio talk show host. I used to listen to uh, <laughs> Alex Bennett and uh, Bob Grant to get uh, both sides of the political spectrum and talk radio was a big thing then. And I, I like that. But I think that might have got me uh, started on the idea of being a lawyer because I sort of liked hearing the debate on both sides and thinking about it and talking about it uh, with my friends and in school and, and whatever. So uh, pretty much when I was in high school, I, I was on the law, the law path and uh, kind of knew by the time I went to college, that was the path uh, that I was going to probably pursue. I didn't know in what form that would be. And like a lot of law students, I had ideas about what I would do when I was a lawyer. And what I ended up doing was totally different than what I thought when I was in law school. So, and listen, it's funny because I also went into college knowing that I wanted to be a lawyer and I was in a special law politics and community affairs program in high school, but that's very unusual. A lot of our colleagues, uh, you know, went into college not knowing what they wanted to be. They were reasonably bright. They sort of graduated and it was like MBA or law school, right? Uh, not, not many of us came in knowing uh, what we wanted to do coming into college. So it's interesting. You and I have that commonality. Uh, yes. And uh, when I uh, was in school, I did something that, that was very important. And I recommend this to uh, young lawyers uh, and, people in law, uh, and to people in law school all the time. I worked at a small firm while I was in school yep. and it was a four lawyer firm. And I paid attention not just to the kinds of cases that they worked on, which were varied and interesting, but I was also interested in how does the office run? What do the different people in the office do? How does the, they, this was a firm with like one main lawyer and four associates and support staff. I paid careful attention. I talk about this in the book. I paid careful attention to how he conducted himself and how the office ran and how fees were set, um, how, what the different people in the office did, how they worked together, leadership styles and all of that stuff. I might not, I might not have called it that at the time, right. but I was paying attention and knew when I was thinking of going on my own that I had learned lessons there that lots of other people my age in that station of life didn't know about. It gave me a lot of confidence to move forward. Yeah, I got to tell you, it's, I mean, the, the thing I tell every lawyer and frankly, every young person in any cut, you know, starting any career is, is to be a sponge. Just be a sponge. Just, you know, at that early stage, you just want to learn, absorb, listen, watch, not just the substance of what you're doing, but yeah, everything that's going on around you. You know, look at look at look at not only how it runs, but look look at who's happy in the job and who's not happy in the job, right? Yes, be curious, kind of ask questions, and yeah. I also realized early on, and something uh, that I tell people all the time as well: uh, law practice is an entrepreneurial pursuit. Yes, um, people ask some people over the years ask me what what kind of job do you have as a lawyer, and I proudly say I don't have a job; I, I own a business. Yeah, there's a there's a big difference. Yeah, and people. <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah. Um, all right. Looking back, one more thing before we talk a little bit more about exactly what you're doing. Now we get into some of the deals you've done. Um, what was your first deal of any type? It could have been something small when you were a kid, something later in life, whatever comes to mind. Uh, first deal you can think of. First deal I can think of is when I uh, decided to open my own practice after reading a book called How to Go Directly into Solo Law Practice Without Missing a Meal. Okay. It was by a lawyer from Beverly Hills who did that. And he wrote this book. I read it while I was in law school and couldn't find a job. And so the first deal I did was following his plan, which I thought would, would work better in New York City than in California, where he did it. Um, I made I found and made a deal with a landlord for a time for space arrangement, 
for an uh -huh. office at 299 Broadway. And the deal was I paid him $100 a month for a desk space in his office. And I got to use his library, refrigerator. Um, uh, and that was a, pretty much about it. But I also got to meet all the other lawyers in the suite. And my deal with him was I pay him $100 a month. He gives me matters to work on. We split any fees that I bring in 50-50. And I was obliged to work approximately 15 hours a week. But I picked that particular office, which was part of the plan, because uh, there were four or five other lawyers in the suite doing lots of things. Um, I went around and basically before I agreed to do the deal and take the space, I asked them all whether they had any work for me. They all, they all did. And the plan was, and the, and the proposed deal was, if I didn't have enough work doing that and doing a little of my own marketing, go to the other lawyers on the floor. And as, as you know, being a guy that spent time in the city, 299 Broadway is right near all of the courts, uh, civil court, Supreme Court, surrogates court, housing court, federal court, criminal court. They were all right there in walking distance. So I went around to the other lawyers on the floor of the building. Had I needed to, which I didn't, had I needed to, I would have gone to the lawyers on the other floors in the building. <laughs> right. And all I did was I walked in, I'm opening my practice. I, I know a little about landlord tenant work, but I'm willing to learn. I'm willing to make appearances. I'll take assignments. Do you have any work for me? I was right. very busy on day one. And <laughs> I made a good deal. That's uh, great. And, yeah. and, you know, even, you know, if you think about it and you look at uh, the elements of that, right? You did some pre-due diligence, right? You scouted things out in advance, right? Which is something everybody should be doing. You want to learn whatever kind of deal it is, whether it's a merger or licensing deal or whatever, you know, you, you know, you want to scout out what's the landscape, right? What's the opportunity in it that other people may not see, especially you want to sort of, you know, pre-check on things to the extent you can, right? And then you, and then you cut a deal. I and mean, that deal was way more involved than $100 for a desk, right? You know, there were other key elements to it. There were, there were a lot of elements to it. And, uh, and not everything about that deal. I was 25 years old when I made that deal. The quality of the cases that I was getting to work on that this uh, lawyer was giving me, they weren't great. I, <laughs> I, I, I made some money on them, but I got in some very difficult situations. Of course, I learned a lot. Uh, and, uh, uh, but it all, it, all, uh, it all worked out. And I, I stayed with that deal, uh, with that set up about two years before uh -huh. I decided to go do something else. And then... Uh, extricated myself from the deal, which was quite easy to do. It wasn't like I, I had to sign a long-term commitment. And I came to find out, of course, that this lawyer had made the same deal with three or four attorneys prior to me and three or four after I was gone. That was oh. the deal. People came and went. I ended up knowing all the people that had to deal with Dave. <laughs> so. Well, and listen, from his point of view, if you think about it, right, he's He's got somebody who he's getting 50, you said 50%, you know, yep. of, uh, uh, of the fee on, uh, he's providing them a desk, which, you know, the, the relative cost of that compared to the, the share of the yep. revenue is nothing. Um, and, uh, you know, he doesn't, you know, I don't know if he did any kind of review of a site whatsoever, but for the most part, the other attorney's doing, doing the work and he's getting half the money, right? Basically, I worked on the cases that I knew how to do. I mean, yeah. you talk about his due diligence. I didn't know how to do some of the things that he gave me. They were way, way beyond what I could do. But I just put those aside and worked on the ones that I knew how to do. Yeah. yeah. I wasn't going to work on one that he gave me. It still haunts me in a certain way. It was some people that were involved in a heavy federal criminal situation. 
And the family members who, who were his clients had put up their houses for bail. Wow. And the guy skipped and went, he left the country. And so they were, they were going to be losing their houses. He gives this to me, $100 a month, 25 years old. I, I looked at it and I put it aside. Never, he never asked me about it again. So wow. that's cra crazy. Wow. All right. So talk to us a little bit about, you know, where you went from there and then, you know, sort of what, what you developed. Because listen, it is, a, you know, and, and I guess, you know, you, you sort of alluded to the fact that, you know, you, you had trouble finding a job when you came out. And listen, I, you know, uh, that is, I was very fortunate because I graduated in 1985, one of the biggest boom economies on earth from a good law school. And I was on the other extreme where I had, you know, 14 job offers before I even blinked. But, you know, there are, you know, people think uh, it's easy for lawyers, everybody, you know, everybody makes a good living. And it's not necessarily true. And certainly there are plenty of times when the economy is not great, when people come out of law school and it's tough. And there not many a, of them will, will start their own practice right out of law school. There was a cycle recently. It may still be going on a little bit now. It just now is so weird with COVID and everything. But, the, yeah. the, you know, the recent job cycle for lawyers was quite weak. Um, but nobody should think that that's the first time in history that that happened in right. 1981 when I graduated, coming out in 82 when I was admitted. Uh, it was not a great uh, cycle. And I went to the University of Texas, a good school. I had good grades. I looking, looking back, I should have been able to get a job. And uh, really, I tried and nothing was forthcoming. And then I said, wait a minute, I, I don't think I can, uh, I can do this. And it ended up that I evolved through various areas of practice. Each one was its own little deal thing. I mean, I can take you through briefly some of the evolutions. And then there was sort of a major one that involved all kinds of deal making, which I'm sure, really happy sure, to talk yeah. about. So, so let's, let's run through I, after two years, I decided to, uh, it, it would probably be best for me to develop a little more of a neighborhood practice. And so I left the 299 Broadway. I found an office in, in Forest Hills, Queens, thought I would develop a local neighborhood practice, which I did. And so I went from initially doing a lot of uh, general practice and landlord tenant in New York, in Manhattan Housing Court. When I got out to Queens, I started doing real estate closings, bread and butter sort of stuff. At a certain point, had young children, wanted to make a little more money, thought that uh, doing plaintiff's personal injury work would be a good thing. I knew how to do it a little bit. I started doing it. I made a little more money. It wasn't life-changing, but there was a big problem. There were several problems. One is I didn't really like the work. Just, right. just, just wasn't for me. I wasn't proud of it. I didn't like it, but I, I learned a lot. And I, I, I liked making a little more money, but I didn't like doing that all the time. And there was another problem. The court system in New York is very inefficient. And when you're in personal injury practice yeah. and you have volume, it's tough. And so in the course of looking at that problem, like for me, most of my cases, but not all, were in Queens. But I had a lot of cases in uh, Brooklyn and Manhattan and the Bronx. And if I had to go there for some kind of conference that was ministerial, travel an hour, hour and a half on the subway or drive, can't park, don't know the rules, wait around, come back to the office exhausted. So I saw that I would have gladly paid someone to do those little appearances for me. And I also saw when lawyers that I was dealing with in Queens were in the Jamaica courthouse, they hated being there. So I got a little idea. My idea was maybe I could cover the cases for the other lawyers. And I did a, a fundamental thing that I still do. I took out the old yellow pad. This is a white one, but I took out the right. old yellow pad and I said, how many cases could I cover in a day? Right. A lot, because you could just go from place to place. 10, 15, 20. What would someone pay me to do that? 100 bucks? That's not a bad day. 10, 15, 20 for 100 bucks each. So yep. I made a little plan. My plan was 
I'll get a list of lawyers that just filed in Queens. I'll do a direct mail campaign. I'll price it at 75 or 100 bucks. I, I priced the easy ones, the preliminary conferences at 75, a loss leader, you might say. Right. But thinking that if somebody uh, hired me for a preliminary conference, where you know we call that a PC, if somebody hired me for a PC and they thought it was good value at 75, they'd probably also hire me for the compliance conferences, the motions, the depositions, and everything else. It kind of turned out to be true. So I made a what I considered a hot list. Uh, had a law clerk do this for me. He made a list of people that just had just filed for a preliminary conference in Queens. Mm -hmm. That was my mailing list. I did a direct mail campaign. I put a lot of a lot of thought into this. A good cover letter explaining what I do. A special Rolodex card that didn't have my name. It had my name below. It said Queens Court Appearances and a price list that I put some thought into. Yes. True story. Over a six month period, I mailed out 1,350 letters like that. You know, staggered, but over six months. From that mailing, I got 275 new Queens Court Appearances clients for my service. It's like a 13% return. Wow. Maybe, maybe one of the all time great direct mail campaigns. <laughs> and it turned out that a lot of them said, hey, this came just at the right time. Well, yeah, I know you just filed for a PC. <laughs> right, right. You it was probably like don't want to go. Uh, and most of them started using me for the CCs, compliance conferences, the, the TAP trial assignment part. Some used me for depositions, motions, et cetera. And they all thought it was so great. They all started telling their friends. So next thing I know, I had a booming situation on my hand, on my hands from a direct mail thing. And so what I had to then do was make a series of deals. So I hang on, before we go there, before we go there, I want to hear about this, but I want to point out because um, listeners of uh, a younger generation may not realize what we're talking about here, right? This is pre-internet, okay? This yes. Is, right? So when, 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 when Barry's talking about direct mail, he's talking about what, what young folks call snail mail now, right? He's not oh, talking yes. about email. He's also talking, when he says Rolodex card, he means literally a physical card that people had in a thing that was called a Rolodex. Wait, wait, right? Let me stop you for a second. Here's the thing about that. It, it, it's all the lawyers had them, but more important than that, all of the calendar clerks, paralegals, and legal secretaries had them on their desk. Yes. So when the boss lawyer came in and said, do we have anyone that could do something in Queens? I don't want to go there. I got to be in Brooklyn and Manhattan. They went to the Rolodex. They didn't have to remember my name. Queens Court that's Appearances. Key. Yep. Yeah, which is perfect. I mean, that's, you know, like you want to talk about, you know, uh, unique selling proposition, positioning yourself, differentiating yourself, all that stuff that, that people talk about in online marketing now. Yes. And I got to tell you something. It was also a time folks that, you know, Barry talks about being entrepreneurial and he always has been. It's one of the ways that, you know, one of the sort of ways he and I always felt connected because I've always been entrepreneurial as well, but that's not, most lawyers are not. not. And frankly, you know, back then, and we, we're talking, what, um, 35, 40 years ago, right? Um, not, quite, not quite that long. When I was doing the per diem stuff, that was in the mid 90s. So I mean, that's a long time. Years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But still 25 years ago, you know, that was still on the point, like the 80s was when things started to turn where, you know, there was this thing, there were some restrictions around, around, you know, lawyer marketing still or advertising. There was this sort of tension between the old time lawyers who said this is a profession and try to make believe it wasn't a business or an entrepreneurial endeavor, but it was, and, and it was forced to become so even more. So Barry was pretty, you know, pretty early in, in, in doing some of these things. Um, so I wanted to point that out now. All right. So now let's evolve that. Where do we go? What deals do you start doing? 
Well, so one of the things was, uh, even though I could uh, cover 10, 15, 20 a day, but once I started doing motions and once I, I fell into uh, some uh, volume appearances in the civil court uh, that just kind of happened by happenstance, which by the way, that's a, another watchword phrase that I've used my entire career, which is when you do things, things happen often unexpected things and usually good things. So I'm, fo I'm focusing on getting cases in the Supreme Court, but somebody found out about it who had a, who had a collection firm. Then all, next thing I knew, several volume collection firms wanted me to make their appearances in civil court, which was in a different building. So I had to make a deal with somebody to cover stuff over there in civil, or at least hold down the fort until I got there. And yeah. even in Supreme Court, where if you if I was doing PCs and CCs, the conferences, which uh, and I understand not everybody knows how primitive the court system was. It's a little changed now, but not, time will tell whether any of that stuff will come back. It probably won't. But they used to schedule 50, 75, 100 of these conferences at the same time in the same place. So it was sort of bad for lawyers in practice, which was good for the per diem business. Right. But when we had to also cover motions, which were in individual judges' courtrooms, it couldn't be there for the calendar call and do the PCs and CCs and the pretrial conferences. So I had to find other lawyers who magically, once I started making this into a volume thing, and I was really the first person to do it on a high volume marketing way. Strangely, once I started getting busy, lots of other attorneys showed up and were willing to do this work. Now, you might say, but those were your competitors. Sort of true in a certain way, but I made deals with most of them. Uh, a lot of them, we had, to, we had to price, well, if can we barter back and forth what I cover for you, you cover for me? Or if not everybody had the volume that I had, so then it was, well, how am I going to pay you? Well, I wanted to make deals where if I had somebody that was covering some volume for me, I wanted a discount. And I kind of knew what they needed in exchange for a discount. And I was willing to do it, which was simply, they wanted to be paid promptly because a lot of them had a problem that I had too, which was not all the law firms that were my customers paid exactly on time. The collections were mostly good, uh, but not perfect. And you could have a couple of bad ones that could really mess you up. And if you have enough volume, you could, you could deal with that. And then if I had competitors, quote unquote, that I didn't like, I would cut off my bad payers knowing that they would then go to my competitors who I didn't like. But it, with most of my quote unquote competitors, it wasn't cutthroat. I made deals with them to sub my work to them or barter with them. And it was simply a matter of how much volume do you have? What do I have? Where are you today? How do we communicate? And yeah. by the way, almost everything about that per diem business that was super primitive in the beginning, over time evolved to be better and better and better. Yep. Technology-wise, I, I initially needed to figure out how do I run the back office of this thing? You know what I did? I took QuickBooks. My wife customized it for me for the per diem business. So we made <clears throat> drop-down menus for all the judges, yep. drop-down menus with pre-printed uh, start-out language for all the appearances. Then when I had covering attorneys, well, in QuickBooks, they would call that sales reps. Yeah. But I just went into the manual part of it, called them covering attorneys, had drop down menus for them. This was a beautiful thing because I could post all my assignments, make a report, who did my work, 
Very easy to figure out how to pay them. Same thing with all the jobs. QuickBooks has a function that a lot of people who use QuickBooks probably don't even know about and don't use estimates. So I made the, I use it. I make the estimates, I call it a pre-bill. That's my setup for the work for court. Then it's like it's there, I can make notes on it. I bring it back to the office and I then, or later on, uh, a paralegal, converts that into an invoice, mails it out back then, now we email. There's, then we would have to make copies of the attachments, the PC order, the CC order. Now it's a PDF, it's attached with the email sure. and it posts to a ledger. Like any other business, like the idea that a law firm, a law practice on that level would run like a business was like a shocking development to a lot of people. Well, well, it, it, it's really interesting because there's several things in it that I want to break down. I mean, one is, um, yeah, I mean, first of all, listen, there was no easy way back then to have, and it wasn't even really a model for the most part to have, uh, you know, people work per diem, to have people work part-time, to have people, I mean, listen, I, I think it was only in the last, ten, I mean, you know, now now you have things like Hire and Esquire and UpCouncil and like online places where you can get people who will work you know, on projects and that kind of stuff. But we weren't even close to having that technology back then. And in fact, um, you know, for many years, you know, you almost had to, you had to like find somebody, you know, to go through a recruiter, hire them, employ them, right? Um, most of them were looking for full-time jobs. Uh, you know, obviously it evolved over time where maybe there were some folks who were looking to work part-time if they were stay-at-home parents or, you know, they had other situations. But, you know, but this sort of gig economy kind of concept that of course, in many, many businesses has been popular for a while. And that wasn't even on the radar back then, um, you know, not at all. So, you know, Barry was really innovative. And then the other thing I want to point out is and this is something that I've raised in other contexts on the show, you know, this concept of doing deals with your competitors, right? Mm. And, and I always say it's not always appropriate, but too many people just automatically assume or cut off, like it's not even considered the possibility of doing a deal with a competitor. And I, I, you know, and I had many situations. I, uh, I mean, just going back to one of the very early episodes on this podcast, I don't have it in front of me, Damon Gersh's episode. Um, you know, D- Damon has a, a restoration a company, disaster restoration, fires, floods, you know, that kind of stuff, uh, disaster, he cleaned up, uh, he made his bones really uh, on cleaning up after 9-11. Um, and, um, and he did a whole, he basically got a bunch of competitors together uh, into an association, into basically a referral association, whatever, whatever to compete with a couple of the big national players. These were all local and regional players who could band together. And they were, yes, nominally competitors, but they're together could compete against the big players. So, you know, always at least consider whether there's an opportunity to do deals with your competitors. And, you know, and that's another great example of uh, a deal aspect that Barry figured out back then. This kind of lent itself to that sort of thing because it was a high volume of sort of low, low pressure. Well, sometimes there was pressure, but it's a, it was a high volume of appearances. Yeah. And actually, sometimes with some of the competitors, we sort of had to work together because we were adversaries on some of these things. That was an aspect of the deal was if I if I'm on both sides of something, what do I do? I would get calls. We always played it ethically. We disclosed it. Sometimes the stuff was so ministerial, it didn't matter. We, would, we had a policy for that, which put part of the deal, maybe we had to do it. But yeah. there'd be times when there would then be little groups of people that were sort of on the same team. So, uh, and we used to joke around, you know, we have the five families and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> I had an idea that I never did. I sometimes look back at, at the ideas that I had, but didn't pursue. Yeah. So 
at a certain point, this thing was going so well that I ended up on the cover of the New York Law Journal and they called wow. me the King of Queens because mm -hmm. I branded this thing for Queens. And I thought that was a really good idea. Now, people may be aware that the whole concept of doing per diem appearances grew over time to where there are now agencies that do it. Uh, yeah. It's kind of a big thing. It's evolving in a tremendously interesting way, uh, which we could talk about as a whole separate thing. But one of the ideas that I had that I never did was I realized that there were people doing what I'm what I was doing, where they made the venue, the defining um, characteristic, the marketing. So there were people that were known as the Brooklyn people and yeah. people in the Bronx. There were certain people that did it. And I, at one point, contacted the people that I considered the leading uh, per diem people in each of the five boroughs. And my idea was to call what we did the five families of per diem. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, fortunately, I actually never did that. <laughs> it's a good idea. If someone wants to have it now, have at it. Go, for it, right? yeah. Go for it. I'm, I'd yeah. still be willing to be the capo of Queens if they want me to. And, and it's interesting also because in terms of business model, obviously, you were practicing law yourself still. But you're also effectively, you know, a marketing company, a staffing company. Uh, you know, I, I look at, um, you know, I've got I've got a friend that you may know, Barry, because he's been around New York for a long, long time as well. I don't know. Matt Weiss, who um, had, a, did, you know, did this with traffic tickets, right? I do, I you know, know 1-800 red light, yes. right? You know, 1-800 yes. red light, you know, and, and he became a marketing machine. He would get in all of these people who got, you know, tickets and uh, and he would hire the lawyers and he'd have a cut with them and they'd cover it in courts all over. And he still does it in New York State. He actually lives in Florida now, you know, and, and he's done other stuff. What's interesting with something like that is it's sort of similar to what you were pointing out with uh, with what I did when I don't know Matt that well, but I was familiar with his work when he did it. It was still primitive times. Yes. But that kind of thing really lends itself to technology and the Internet. Yeah. I mean, you just got to just know it's a simple thing. I'm not an SEO expert, but I know that if you've got it where your best clients are doing a logical Google search and you're coming up, you're good. Yep. People are going to call people are going to contact you and the traffic uh, traffic lends itself to that. Yeah. And listen, especially in those sort of more, you know, consumer law, you know, areas. Right. You know, uh, it's a little different B2B, although I will tell you, I'm we're very fortunate. We don't do any major SEO stuff, whatever. But in the investment advisor space, the registered investment advisor space, people who manage money, which we have a niche in. Uh, I show up one, two or three on every Google search for uh, RIA counsel, RIA lawyer, RIA breakaway broker counsel. And we just did that because of the content we put out. But, um, but, you know, back then you didn't have that opportunity to create, you know, to, to do content. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to CoreyCupfer.com slash assessment. That's CoreyCupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. Uh, well, why, why don't I just ask an open question? Yeah. Where, where are you now? Like, how okay, is this? About? So uh, <laughs> um, I had the per diem business going great guns. Yep. So I'm going to get into something a little personal here. Okay, but but then I think for our entrepreneurial friends, this may be a good lesson. Yeah. Um, I had the per diem business going great guns, but I also at the same time had a private practice, which at that time was this plaintiff's personal injury work that I hated. And I was not smart enough or mature enough at that time 
to extricate myself from that. I had the cases. I thought kept still I'm going to hit big cases. I got to do this. The, uh, the per diem business is cash flow, but my big money is going to come from. So I was working and working and working, and it was getting harder and harder and harder because I loved that per diem business. It was exciting. I was getting publicity. And every day I would come back from court and there were all the calls and the messages and the motions and the mail for these personal injury cases that I hated. And instead of dealing with it in a mature way, like maybe making a deal with another personal injury firm, I realize it now. I should have just made a deal with a personal injury firm. I had, I had done some good marketing there. I had yeah. the cases coming in. Yeah, I could have just made a deal, but I didn't. I fought it. I was angry. And at age 43, I had a heart attack. Wow. Yep. I didn't work for almost a year. And a lot of my friends and people that knew me said, oh, you're running around there with the per diem business. The pressure got to you. No, I knew. Didn't figure it out till much later, but I knew what gave me the heart attack was the not dealing with the pent up anger and frustration. And I had this area of law that I was doing that I hated something else that was going well that I couldn't enjoy because it was weighing me down. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I talk about this in the book quite a bit, you know, how I recovered, what I was thinking, what I decided to do after that. Uh, so basically, uh, getting rid of the per diem, or excuse me, getting rid of the personal injury cases when I was recovering from the heart attack was actually pretty easy. I made different arrangements with different people. I yep. called up and settled a lot of cases because I could, I had the time. The craziest thing is that in the year after my heart attack, I had my best year financially up until that point because <laughs> I spent my time on the phone uh, settling my cases. When whatever cases I couldn't settle, I either made motions to get out of them or I turned them over to other lawyers, which is what I should have done with all the cases. Right. Now I had the per diem business, which ultimately I recovered physically enough where I could go back to doing that business but I really wanted to have a private practice too. Didn't want to run around. So I made a deal with somebody to manage my per diem practice. This lasted for a few years. And uh, I was basically the back office, go to court occasionally, just keep my eye on things, handle the collections, uh, talk to people if, an, if a complicated case came in, figure out who's going to work for us, et cetera. Uh, and decided to go into a new area of private practice for me, but this time I picked something I was interested in and that I liked. So I started doing while the per diem business was going on under a management deal with another lawyer. Yep. I learned how 15, 20 years into my career, I started doing probate and estate administration. Yep. So this is a very particular thing. This is not, although it's related to, it's not estate planning. These are all the cases where people probably should have done estate planning and they didn't, which is a lot of cases. And I don't know why. It's not for everybody. I really like it. These are all the cases where somebody died and then you're in surrogate's court. There's a will or there's not. It's friendly or it's unfriendly. I'm being asked to represent the fiduciary or somebody affected by what the fiduciary is doing or not doing. And I taught myself how to do it. I had a general knowledge of it before. But you know something? And this is a lesson for people. Not that hard to learn a new thing if you really want to. You know, when I started in practice, there really wasn't CLE. Right. And now I, I get it. I've taken CLE courses on things that I knew I wasn't going to do as my practice just because. But if you want to learn stuff, you take the CLEs in the areas you're interested in. And yeah, every once in a while, I'll take one on cannabis law. 
just because I like, I like to know that, but I'm not going to be in that field. But when I started doing probate in the state administration and surrogates court, there were plenty of cases that I, plenty of CLEs I could take. Next thing I knew, I could speak the language. Then what I did was I knew that there were lots of cases in surrogates court where a guardian ad litem gets appointed. That's somebody that the, that the surrogate judge appoints to represent the interests of unknowns or missing people or minors or people who are incarcerated. It's a court appointment and you get paid at the end of the case, the judge sets a fee. I took a particular CLE course that got me on the list for Queen's surrogate. I would always, at every event, I would speak to the surrogate. I wrote him a letter. I'm really interested in this field. Next thing I know, I'm appointed on 20 or 30 over the course of a year, uh, guardian ad litem matters. Here's the fringe benefit of that. Being in those cases at the guardian ad litem, sort of a, a, most of the time, a fringe player in the case. Not always, sometimes I was a major player. Most of the time I had a role report to the court on what's going on on behalf of the person you were appointed to represent. That person's called your ward. So I, I was doing that, but the fringe benefit was I was involved in a lot of big cases with top lawyers with lots of money and interesting legal issues involved. And I got to know all the players. I got to see the papers that all these great lawyers were filing. And next thing I know, I'm kind of in the game. Figured out a way to market that. I was an early person having a website devoted to a particular specialty. Mm. Uh, this was probably in uh, the mid, in the early 2000s. Because um, I, I had my heart attack in 2000. And I started doing those surrogates work in about 2004, 2005. Wow. I did something. And here's another thing related to that. Uh, I did use a big company to, uh, to set up my website. But really, wasn't, it wasn't that expensive you know, for what I wanted to do. I, I did my simple math. If I get one good case from this, it's paid for for the year. Right. It seemed right. like a worthwhile. Yeah, you know, uh, it was costing for my initial site $300 a month. So what was that? $3,600 for the year. My retainer on most cases then at $350 an hour, if I was getting retained, it was $3,500. The, the, the day the site went up, I was retained on two cases. So I was, I figured I was, I'm, I'm a real businessman. Right. Yeah, I had it right. covered. Uh, but what the point I want to make about that is when I started doing that, I'm working with a big company and they, uh, they had writers who would write the copy based on what you tell them. I didn't really like, I didn't think my, I didn't think the ideal clients that I wanted would like what I call internet speak. Yeah. So I got it, put in some, Put in meta tags. I don't really care. Whatever it is that's going to maximize it, do that. But I wrote most of the stuff myself. Did it take some time and effort? Yeah. But I wrote it in a way that was reflective of who I am, how I would explain stuff. And that was really well received. I switched the model to something different, which I have now. It's queensprobate.com. It's more in a blog form, but it's it serves that blog serves as my website for my probate work. And those articles, I write them on specific topics. I write them with a, in a specific tone and a certain way. And I get clients that are suitable for me that, that I like working with. Why do I like them? Because they read my stuff and they appreciate that I put stuff out there in a conversational way. And they come to me almost pre-knowing stuff because they've read the stuff. Not, not if, does everybody do that? No. I mean, do all the clients read all my stuff? No, they just see you wrote about this. You probably know. Okay, that's good too. Uh, but uh, there were, I didn't read any book that taught me how to 
how to you know, make a website for probate work. Just looked out <laughs> there. Like, here's another thing with that. People don't think of this. Uh, I knew that the Holy Grail was my logical best client is doing a logical Google search. I want them to find me. Right. Yeah. This requires you to do something that a lot of people skip this step, like defining who is my ideal client. Think about that person. Get in their head a little bit. What is the problem that they have? And I want it to be something that I would want to work on. That was like a big difference from when I want. I wanted to be in personal injury so I could make more money. Right. N not a good model. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so I think about what would my person do? And here's a st another step that people skip. So now I've thought of my logical client. This is what people should do. The yes. next thing that a person should do is they should get in the head of their logical client and start doing logical Google searches that the client yeah, What are they do. looking for? I know it's elementary. Listen, people that are real business folks, I get it. It's elementary. But yep. here's something to think about. For a lot of lawyers who entrepreneurial is is like something they're coming to later in their career or that they didn't realize, oh shoot, I have to do that too? Yeah, you do. So uh, I do the logical searches for what my ideal clients. Man, if you pay attention to those results, you learn a lot. You know, you first of all, you know who all your competitors are, many of whom you can make deals with. You know what I found when I did that? So if I had a case that was in Suffolk County and I didn't want to do it, but I saw a great website for someone in Suffolk County while I was searching, yeah, I logged that in and made a note of it. It's just uh, lots to do and lots to think about. But hey, if you're an entrepreneur, you do those things. So. Totally. And and listen, you know, the the concept of, um, you know, these strategic alliances, right? You know, I mean, that's that's a, such a key deal that, that and, and in other industries, I mean, this is the thing, folks, the reason why I have folks on from all different industries, size companies, doing all different types of deals is because, I'm hoping that, you know, for those of you who are coming on here because you are maybe starting to explore, maybe you do deals in a particular area, but you realize there may be other types of deals you can do to grow your business, right? People, no matter what industry they're in, if you're really open, you know, you're going to get some ideas. And you've heard me say this before. I mean, I often just ask who can help you with that, right? I mean, that fundamental question, you know, hey, I really want to expand into this industry. I'm having trouble getting in there. Uh, you know, I want to expand this geography, this product line, this whatever. Well, who's in there already? And and by the way, some of them may be competitors. And again, you may be able to do deals with them. But some of them may totally not be competitors. They just may be in adjacent industries, right? You know, but they have access to that market. And, and you know, you're banging your head against the wall to, to have organic sales, to try to break into a market. And if you did a strategic alliance or a deal, a distribution deal, or, you know, a, you know, a, a co-counsel arrangement or a referral arrangement, or, you know, depending on what industry you're in, whatever, whatever it is, fundamentally, it's some sort of alliance. It's some sort of business partnership, strategic alliance, contract relationship deal between you and someone else who has access uh, or expertise or, you know, whatever it is to the, you know, to, to what you're trying to get to, you can accelerate your growth so much more quickly than trying to figure it out on your own. A lot of times, so you don't have to acquire the company, you just can contract with them. Yes. And that's sort of related to uh, you got to know what your assets are and you got to know what you, what you need and who might have that and try to find like-minded people who realize that working together is almost always going to be better if it's a good, if it's a good fit and you got to spend the time looking. Now there's tons of this sort of thinking going on as a result of the pandemic. I mean, I can tell you about uh, what I, what happened to me. It's like a crazy, crazy story. Uh, at the time when uh, uh, the, the, the pandemic hit, and for people like in the per diem world, 
there's a there's a known date. The last date that court was kind of open, <laughs> right. March 20th of 2020. You want to hear a crazy thing? I had my heart attack on March 20th of 00. And the last day of the per diem world was March 20th of 2020. <laughs> wow. Okay. And you know, yeah. from knowing about the legal, uh, the courts in New York, March 20th of 20 was the last day that court was kind of open. I yep. can't even believe they kept it open that long. A lot of people got COVID during that time. Right, that, right. That, that's a separate issue. Okay. At the time when court essentially closed down, and I'll talk in a second about what happened in the aftermath. Uh, at that time, my per diem uh, business was 70% of my income. All right. And the other 30% was um, my probate and estate work. I really, at that point, wasn't doing other things. When I would get calls, I would refer them. I had like, because I had like a lot of, a lot of you know, 35 at that point, no, 37 years in practice at that point, I was getting calls for lots of different things, but I had a, an extensive network and I was always referring me. So the actual work, 70% the per diem, 30% probate and estate stuff. It was a mix that was okay, but frankly, I was getting a little worn out just being involved in the per diem. I, I was looking at it. I also never thought that that per diem business would last forever. I right. thought I might ride off into the sunset into my retirement on it. The reason I didn't think it would last is it was based on the inefficiencies of the court system Yes. and stuff that now almost a year and a half later, it seems kind of stupid that they ever did it this way. Because what happened when the pandemic hit? Court was closed. Okay, it was everyone was stunned for a month or two. Everybody was doing whatever they were doing. Now you're looking, well, what's going to happen with all these cases in court? So you see, the court is trying to do some virtual uh, unlike some other people in the per diem world, I didn't just sit around and say, well, when are they going to start opening up court again? I had my own cases in private practice too. So I paid attention to what does a virtual appearance look like? Soon as I did two or three of those, I said to myself, I think the per diem business is finished mm -hmm. because all of this going to court, sitting around, commuting, wasting time, whether the pandemic resolves, whether it's safe, whenever it's safe, they're going to figure out how to do this. And it was not working so great at first. You know Why? Because they got a court system full of people who are old timers. They don't want to learn a new technology. The judges are kind of like that too. Most of them have, have been pretty good with it, but I knew there was a learning curve. But I also knew that the higher ups wanted the virtual to work. You had to read between the, read the tea leaves a little bit. Yeah, we're going to open court eventually, but for now we're trying this. Look at all the cases we're covering. Okay, so I paid attention to the whole time, I'm still doing this, as to what might happen with court appearances when and if the courts open on some level. They're basically really not open yet. And I don't know that they will or in what level. The most lawyers in practice will tell you they love virtual. They mm -hmm. love it. Why? So much more efficient. So much more, have, right? Yeah. For, re for reasons that are not always, I mean, the, there's some obvious ones. Yeah. You don't have to commute. You don't have to wait. You go there. You wait. But there's other things too. When the court is doing a virtual appearance with you and your adversaries, the court has to be ready too. And right. it's at a scheduled time, right. you know? So, and if everybody isn't ready for some reason, something happens, all right, boom, boom, boom. We have a little talk on, a, on, on Microsoft Teams and we move on. When do you want to see me again? Fine, put it in, I'll send you a link. Like, like the rest of the world. Right. So, right. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so I have been keeping my eye on the per diem, but two or three months after the uh, lockdown, uh, I said, well, 
if I'm at 70, 70% of my income, I'm paying people to work here. I had a full-time person just doing the calendaring on per diem. And she was a really talented person. She was helping my associate and I in the probate side some. So she had some working knowledge of it. But I realized, well, I really actually do like the probate. Do I have enough time? Is there enough financial support coming through PPP in various places where I could buckle down and say, all right, I'm going to keep my eye on per diem, but can I take my probate to the next level? I was good at it. I knew a lot. I had a good website. I had cases. And then, of course, it was this other little thing. A lot of people died. So I, here's a crazy thing, too. So I'm sitting at home last April and May saying, oh, well, I guess it, it sucks that my per diem business is finished, but I'm in the probate field and, I'll, and, and tens of thousands of people died. Uh, I didn't want to be morbid about it, but I thought, all right, I'm going to get really busy. And I, I kind of tried to put a little uh, ad and Google my business. But guess what? I wasn't the only person who thought that probate would be busy in the of COVID. <laughs> and I realized that, all right, I used to be on page one with my blogs and stuff, with my great articles. And now everybody is paying Google to be in Google My Business. I'm on page three. Holy crap. That was unbelievable to me. I did it for a couple of months, spent a little money, not too much, then realized I'm getting low-end cases and bottom feeding anyway. Do I really want to do that? Do I really want to be competing with everybody doing a $2,500 flat rate probate for people that don't even didn't even read anything about? So I was like, oh, you know what? I'm not even going to do that. I'm going to up my game to the higher level where I think I can do it. And I talked to my, I, I have a, a lawyer associate and a paralegal. We were meeting on Zoom twice a week to talk about what are we going to do? What does everybody think? What can we do? What are our options? And I, I basically concluded after getting you know, feedback from them, we can build up this probate. We'll use the PPP productively. I had my person who was working with me in the per diem. We kind of brought her over on the probate side because if we were busy, we needed a support person. And uh, it's working out really well. I kind of uh, kind of say I like it. And am I still now? Court is opening a little bit now. A little bit, yeah. A little bit. So here's what's happening. I'm still out there. People know me. I don't really want to go. I was going before the lockdown. I was, I was, I was working it. Yep. I recovered enough where I could work. I was working. I didn't really like it that much. So now, what am I looking to do? I'm looking to make deals with the people that want to still be in the business. You know, and I found that. Well, what did most people want who are my lawyer customers for, for per diem? They wanted to know, well, what's going on in court? We don't really understand how it, what they're doing. So my paralegal and I, we know that. She, she, can, she can tell them. Do they need me personally to go? No. And the people that I'm making deals with who want to go, because that's what they want to do, they know. And the deals that I can make with them are pretty favorable. I found I could up my fees a little bit because people understood that it's a different world. I think in a weird way, a lot of the lawyers in practice know that the per diem lawyers got really financially hammered in all of this. So they're not objecting too much when we up the fees a bit. That yep. puts me in a position to make a little bit of a better deal. Yep. Before I could never propose a 50-50 split with the covering attorney. Very rarely, sometimes I did. But yep. now it, it works. Right. And so I'm right. gonna look at that if that's something, yeah. Yeah. And making enough. Yeah. And you know, it's, some, it, it, yeah, it's interesting just to say, and we need to 
we, I can talk to you forever and I've always enjoyed talking to you even offline, but we, we, we'll need to wrap up. So I'm going to go to my last two questions, but I want to point out, you know, that from the per diem attorney side, right? Listen, on any kind of deal, everybody's going to bring something to the table, right? Yeah. And a lot of, a lot of attorneys, frankly, don't, aren't great about bringing in business. They aren't good about marketing. They don't have those skills or interest or whatever it is. So they're very happy to be able to have someone flow them cases and be able to just show up in court and get paid. Right. So, yes, you know, yes. they, that solves the need for them. Right. Barry is, you know, amazing talent is also good in court, but the point is that he has that this other talent to be able to create a case flow, you know, a case flow and do the marketing and bring in clients. And it's a great deal for everybody, you know? Um, so Barry, okay. So I know we mentioned a couple of the resources, but uh, before I ask you my last question, I want to give you an opportunity to, uh, give people the contact information where they can find about your practice, your book, uh, you know, anything else that you want to share. Well, sure. Thank you, Doug. Thank you, Corey. Uh, I have a website for my book. It's www.evolutionsofalawpractice.com. And uh, it's, uh, it's, on, it's on Amazon. You can get it through, get there through the site. Uh, you know, I'm very gratified. It's getting nice reviews. And I actually, some of the best feedback that I've gotten is from people who are not lawyers who just look at that book as, Here's a book about entrepreneurship and about overcoming adversity. And how do you think about business? How do you pivot and adjust? I don't want to put too much pressure on myself and say that the next book suggests itself, but it's right there, the next evolution. Yeah. Because I write in the book about evolving through five or six or seven different areas of law and adjusting to things. And then boom, I, I released that book in December of 2019. Uh, and then we have a pandemic. So right. was I going to go on a national book tour? Well, no, uh, but uh, I would have been probably doing more with that. But now I realize I've got a year and a half of intense experience of figuring out what to do in a <laughs> exactly. crisis and what I want to do next and now. And I'm looking at all those things. Uh, yeah. And in terms so, of your law firm and oh, any yes. other and so uh, uh, the primary thing that we do is uh, still uh, probate and estate administration in surrogates yeah. court, uh, queensprobate.com. And queensprobate.com. I post pretty regularly on LinkedIn too. I write articles and like to talk about issues of the day, mostly about the uh, the court system, but also about surrogates court, and um, love interacting with uh, with people about all those uh, about all those issues. Love it. So Barry, my final question of the podcast is always the same. It's about my highest value in life, which is freedom, and for me that means everything from freedom for all people from oppression to the reason why I've been an entrepreneur for over, you know, well, actually since I'm 15, but, but in, in my own law firm, you know, for over 30 years, uh, what does freedom mean to you in your life and business? Uh, meant kind of everything because uh, I went in my own practice so that I would have the freedom and the ability to decide what types of cases and situations and business I wanted to be involved in. And I also, it was really important to me to be involved with my family and with my and with my kids. And uh, while at a certain point in my life, I thought, well, money is important. Money is important, but money is not everything. And I would never sacrifice uh, the important things, uh, family and doing things and being able to be there when people need you and being able to think clearly and to have outside interests. Uh, and so entrepreneurship gave me the, the freedom uh, to do that. Uh, and that is not to say I ever, you know, sat around and didn't work hard. I've worked hard and I still work hard, 
but I do it with a mind towards I'm doing this stuff, you know, for me and for my family and to have the freedom to maybe decide to do it a little less. That'll be my next, uh, that's my next big deal. My next big deal is figuring out, I don't want to like one day stop and say I'm a retired person. My next deal is going to be, I've got 38 years and change of goodwill and practice and skill and knowledge. Uh, I know how to run a run. I know how to run a practice in an office. I have good loyal people that work for me. Uh, what kind of deal can I make with someone where I can bring something to the table for them? They can, they have something that's useful for me. And if what I bring to the table for them or what I want is I want the ability to work a little less, write a little more, have a little more freedom. That's going to be the next deal. Perfect. Thank you so much for being an amazing guest. on Thank you for everything that you do, Corey, talking about entrepreneurship and uh, deals and business. I love it. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.